Okay, so we've talked a little bit about the past. We've talked about, um, again, chapters 5 and 6 and 7, this false view of the, of the body. Remember this Gnosticism that steeped into the Christian church that reflected itself either in the extreme of licentiousness, anything goes, or in the extreme, opposite extreme of asceticism, nothing at all, <laughs> and you have to punish the body um, in order to be truly spiritual. We saw, too, in chapter 8, when we talked about, um, at 8, 9, and 10, really, when we talked about meat sacrificed to idols, that there is this sense in which Paul's concerned that this freedom that these Corinthians have would cause the weak in their midst to stumble. And he's discouraging them from um, operating out of this principle of knowledge. Well, I know that an idol is nothing, so I can go eat the meat sacrificed to an idol. He says, no, your weaker brother doesn't know this. And so the operating principle for your action should be love rather than knowledge. Love should determine what you do. He talks about this. Paul um, talks about this in the way that he's an apostle in chapter 9, how he has foregone his rights quote-unquote, in order to be all things to all people. And that's the principle that he's encouraging in them, that humility in the midst of their freedom, that love for each other in the midst of their freedom. And that also, um, understanding chapter 11 in that context, we're going to see that there is a tie-in between these two topics that seem to be totally different. First, the topic of the women wearing the veils and the head coverings, again, foregoing their right, their freedom in the Lord. Why aren't we free to you know, take off this head covering? We're in the family of God. It's like we're at home. And he's saying, no, forego this freedom for the benefit of the whole body of Christ and especially for the benefit of the men in your midst. And we're going to see it now as we look at um, verses 17 um, through the end of the chapter in that Paul is saying also this foregoing of freedom. He's not even going to call what they're doing freedom. He calls, he's going to call it really um, something dastardly. And you'll see the juxtaposition between what he was saying at the cha- first part of the chapter. So many people will elevate this, um, the, the topics between men and women to the highest, utmost importance. But Paul does not do that. In introducing at the beginning of the chapter the issue about the head coverings, he's pumping them up, encouraging them, I commend you because you remember me in everything and maintain the traditions, but I want you to understand, and now he's going to go into that explanation, but look at that, isn't that so much more sedate versus um, verse 17, if you just look at verse 17, but in contrast to these verses that have gone on before and this topic that's gone on before, in contrast... In the following instructions, I do not commend you, because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. Continuing on in verse 18. And I'm going to keep going through verse 22, and you'll hear his, um, his, his, he's got a lot of um, fuel behind this fire of, of what he's saying, behind his argument. He's very upset. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. But when you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. 
get a little more fuel to the fire, right? He's more upset about this than about the women not wearing their veils. He's not going to commend them because what they've done is they've, um, they have unequal access to the Lord's table. Um, there are divisions, and these divisions are a little different than the divisions he talked about in the first part of the book. Those divisions were based on, but maybe they fell along the same lines. Those divisions were based on different um, theological factions. And also we think, too, maybe some bit had to do with some saying they were super spiritual and they had this special knowledge. Remember, the special wisdom and gnosis that others didn't have, and so they were dominating the group in that way. And they were trying to point towards some of the teachers that had come through, not just Paul, but Peter, Apollos, and they were um, dividing up into factions um, and claiming that they belonged to each of these different teachers um, and pitting these teachers against them, not through any fault of the teachers themselves who are long gone. So here this division is definitely economic. Um, Essentially, the rich were eating and drinking and even getting drunk at these love feasts where they also had the Lord's Supper, while those who had nothing were arriving a little later, it seems, and were, were hungry, going hungry, not even getting to partake of the body and blood of Jesus Christ. Isn't that interesting? How fascinating. Here, the Lord's Supper, again, it's so important. Um, and this is one of the earliest accounts that we have of Holy Communion. It's also one of the earliest recordings, as we're going to see in a couple verses, of Jesus' own words. If you have a red-letter Bible like I do, in verses 23 through 26, you'll see there are some red letters in there. Paul is going to quote what Jesus has said himself the night before his death about the Lord's Supper. He says that these problems are so serious that what they're eating and drinking is not even the Lord's Supper. It's something else. What would have happened in this day and age? What do we think this situation is? Well, it's possible, especially within the pagan world, that there were these different clubs and associations or guilds within the ancient worlds that had communal meals. Remember how these communal meals where meat was sacrificed to idols was an issue before, but maybe there are some of these other communal meals that they're partaking of that are not directly related to idols. They were paid for with common funds and, but in the midst of that kind of communal meal, not everyone got an equal amount of food. Some were given out a bigger portion based on their status, even though everyone had paid into the fund. So there's some thought that these cultural things that were going on normally in Corinth outside the church were informing how these Corinthians um, were approaching the Lord's Supper. Does that make sense? Remember that word from the beginning of our study that Um, that Paul is trying to do surgery. He's trying to take Corinth out of the Corinthians without, uh, while still leaving their faith intact and bolstering them in the gospel. Their cultural milieu has affected them so much that that's informing their behavior more um, than the gospel, which is why he's repeated the gospel in the beginning. So this situation, it's somewhat similar. Do you remember the story of Ananias and Sapphira in the book of Acts? Anybody remember what happens here? Want to say? That's right. It's chapter 5 in the book of Acts. It was kind of intense. Like Barnabas and others who had been selling all their property, Barnabas and others, Barnabas is the only one that's named, 
had been selling their property and then giving all of this money to the group so that then they could feed the poor in their midst. So that everyone, there was no one who had any kind of need in their midst. And this is not a kind of communism that scripture is advocating for. It's a generosity inspired by the very Holy Spirit himself. And so the problem with Ananias and Sapphira is it's almost as though they saw the public respect and the accolades that Barnabas and others were getting for these acts of extreme generosity, and they wanted that, but they also wanted to hold back some of the proceeds from the sale of their property. So they, they sell the property. It, they make it seem as though they're giving everything from the sale of the property to the church, but they've kept some back. And Peter deals with each of them individually, and through prophetic knowledge from the Lord, miraculously, he knows what's going on, and it's their deception and their lying and their selfishness in that um, that causes them both to experience God's judgment on the spot, and they both die, and it's very intense. There's some of this idea here, too, that there might have been some generosity going on in the group, that those who were wealthier were giving much, um, but then also taking much and taking out of it. There was this appearance of charity and appearance of generosity um, masking a self-serving attitude. Um, there was an aspect perhaps even of deception to it. These were often, these kind of gatherings elsewhere are called love feasts, Christian love feasts, but this was a travesty of love if some were going hungry. So it, it seems to as though the poor, those who were both lower class and those who were even enslaved, bond servants, could not get to the meals as quickly as the rich. Just think about all the free time that the rich would have had in comparison with those who are working at all hours of the day and night at the, at the behest of others. They couldn't get away from their jobs to get there as quickly. By the time they got there, everything was gone, had been already eaten. What a sharp contrast between the hungry poor and the drunken rich. Just like the um, parable of Lazarus and the rich man, this is one of those convicting <laughs> thoughts. I, even just yesterday, we went out for brunch after church and passed two hungry men on the street on our way to, to, um, to Tritoria Central. And just, I love the way my husband, he's a much better person than I am, engages each one of the talk men. He talks to them. He asks them how they're doing. He says, no, I can't give you any money but we can give you some food if you'd like. If you're here, you know, in an hour when we come back out, we'll have something for you. I, I just admire that so much because I'm, I'm afraid. I'm, I've got my blinders on. I'm saying, no, no, let's not engage. Don't engage because then they'll ask you for something. And, but again, not giving them the money that can get them to buy alcohol or something that's going to hurt them, but rather giving them food directly. But again, it's so convicting to see this in the midst of our culture where... You know, all of that language about being the 1% a few years ago. Um, within our world culture and our world economy as Americans, we all are the 1%, whether we feel like we're in the 1% of our culture or not. And so that wealth that we have, we can't even comprehend the amount of poverty throughout the world. It's very sobering to think about that and think about that sharing generously. Well, in this situation, in this microcosm of this church, it was playing out in very diabolical ways. So let's go on. Um, Paul's correction continues with um, referencing the words of the Lord Jesus Christ specifically. Beginning in verse 23. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, 
took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Sound familiar? Why does it sound familiar? That's what we say on Sunday morning. They're called the words of institution. The institution, the founding of the Lord's Supper the night before his death. These words, Paul says, I receive from the Lord what I also deliver to you. These passing on and receiving and passing on, they're almost technical words for the apostolic tradition. The passing on of direct communication from Jesus to others who would then pass it on to others beyond that. Although it almost seems as though, as though Paul is saying he received it directly from the Lord. And so Paul might have had a direct revelation of this. We know he wasn't there the night before Jesus died. He was not in the upper room with the disciples. But it might be that the Lord, the risen Lord Jesus, who appeared to him more than once, might have revealed this specifically to him. So Paul is passing this on, the this, um, again, emphasizing, first of all, emphasizing in verse 23 that this is happening um, right as Jesus is about to be betrayed, um, right as he's about to be given over to death. And so that this refers not to the bread. Isn't that interesting? In the language of it, that this, if this was referring to the bread, it would have been conjugated in a different way so that it was specifically masculine. Um, but it's actually neuter, which means all of this. Essentially, all of what I'm about to do, all of this is for you. All of this is something in which you will partake of. All of this, Jesus' arrest, his trial, his death, his resurrection, all of that is for us. And so there's this vicarious aspect to it. Um, this is... Um, done on our behalf and that's part of the beauty of it and that's part of what we remember when we come to the table um, this remembering again is different than a mere um, remembrance that happens in our mind in separate you know I think a lot of Protestant traditions you'll, it's like me and Jesus and my juice cup and my little piece <coughs> of bread over here in the corner just uh, and it's real if I think it's real in my head and it ha- it's set apart from even the words of the promise and the words um, that are said over the whole body of Christ. There's something beautiful about the way we receive as a whole body. We all go up together. We all receive. We all drink um, from one cup. Even if you dip into the one cup, that's the image behind that one cup is that idea of unity in it. Um, and so this, the this, the, this is not just about Um, mere remembering off on our very own. There is a very real gift of the Savior in the sacrament. Um, It's nonetheless real for being essentially spiritual. Um, But we don't look at the bread itself as being um, specifically the body of Jesus. Jesus is really present there in, in the holy table in receiving. And he's present through the words of the promise said over the elements of bread and wine. But this passage cannot be a proof text for those Catholic and semi-Catholic doctrines of transubstantiation or consubstantiation. Does anybody know what those are? 
big fancy words, right? Yeah, and that it's like, again, the transubstantiation was something that came about through the Middle Ages. They believed it, it's part of this Platonic ideal belief that the body of Christ exists in heaven, in the real, in the ideal, and somehow the ideal comes down to earth in that moment, made, made possible because of the words that the priest said over the host. That's what they believe, this kind of almost magical transference from heaven that descends down, and there is Jesus Christ laying right there in front of you on the patent on the little silver plate. That's, that's not what we believe, right? We believe he's really present, but not in the molecules of the bread, right? Um, any thoughts or pushback on that? That doesn't mean we don't um, act reverently around the bread and wine. Any of you on Altar Guild know there's so many actions that we take that are part of, it's a very tangible, physical way to worship, isn't it? To just um, to say, I recognize you, Lord Jesus. You are present here in the breaking of the bread. And so I'm going to um, treat these elements with reverence because you're present to your people through this physical sign. Um, any thoughts about this? Okay. Um, this idea of the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Remember that the old covenant is the covenant that God made with his people Israel in Exodus chapter 24. While the new covenant is the covenant promised in Jeremiah 31, 31, which I'm going to read right here. The new covenant promise says this. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declared the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me, from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity, and I will remember their sin no more. Isn't that beautiful? That's Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34. And we have this present idea there that, um, that in this new covenant, it's almost as though the old covenant exists to show the human need for a new covenant. Right? The old covenant exists to be broken in some ways. Um, if, if the people of Israel could have obeyed perfectly the law of the Lord, then there would be no need for atonement. And yet the Lord knows that they're not going to obey it perfectly. And the law points to their sin, shows them their sin. And so in that brokenness of the covenant, um, the Lord comes to fulfill and to redeem his people from that. He upholds both sides of that covenant that he made long ago um, with the people of Israel through Abraham and then through Moses. And he then um, and he, he upholds that old covenant in the recreation of the new covenant in offering Jesus as the sacrament, a sacri- sacrifice to atone for the guilt of the people of Israel, the guilt of the whole world in um, breaking the covenant, in sinning. And so through the blood of Jesus Christ, this new covenant is enacted. Um, through his death, the new covenant is established. Um, any thoughts about that? This new um, agreement, this new kind of relationship between us and God, because of the forgiveness of sins, then this righteousness, this obeying of the law, happens spontaneously. 
And this is how you can tell if you're operating under the new covenant or the old covenant. Not that it's bad to do things even when you don't want to do them. But if you find yourself saying, oh, I really don't want to go see this person that's in need of some visiting. Maybe it's someone who's elderly in the nursing home and you know that they're lonely and you go and see them. Um, you really don't want to, but you go and do it anyway. That's, that's really the old covenant acting upon you. you know? It's this, I'm going to do it, but I don't want to. <laughs> There's a lot of sin involved in that. It's the spontaneous, not that it's, it's great, good thing. Go, go still to the nursing home and see the person. But it's the spontaneous giving, that spontaneous obedience to the law, um, that spontaneous love for the Lord that plays itself out in, um, in these acts of, of goodness towards each other and towards him this spontaneous devotion. I want to get up at 5 o'clock and read my Bible. That, that is an act of the Holy Spirit. That is God's work in us whenever that happens. And so to recognize that, that's because of this new covenant. That's because of our sins being forgiven. That's because of grace being extended to us. It's that sweetness of the Lord that makes us respond spontaneously without our flesh getting in the way. That's the Holy Spirit at work in us. Um, So this new covenant brings about a different kind of righteousness um, for God's people. Okay. Um, One last thing about this. Um, Two last things. First thing, um, he says, for as often as you eat this bread, and we're looking at verse 26, and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And this idea of proclaiming, some people approach Holy Communion as a way of saying, God, we're giving this back to you. Isn't that funny? But there are, that's a lot within the Catholic tradition. There's this idea of this act of service that we're giving you. While we come to this table, while we observe this feast, we're giving you something in return. And that's not at all the Protestant or really the scriptural viewpoint looking at it. We're saying when we proclaim Jesus' death, we're not talking to God about it. We're talking to each other. It's as though um, Holy Communion itself is an acted sermon, as one commentator says. I love this. An acted proclamation of the death which it commemorates. This visible sign shows forth to us and to those around us just what it is that God has done for us. So that proclamation is for other people. And we're proclaiming his death until he comes. There's some thought that maybe these Corinthians, because they were so about the fact that the end times had come, they were spiritual, the Holy Spirit had been poured out, they had this vision that somehow um, Jesus, in, in dying and rising and the pouring out of the Holy Spirit, the end had come. And in some ways that's how scripture looks at Jesus' first coming. But there's this sense in which the fulfillment of God's plans for all creation is not yet um, come. That fulfillment has not yet arrived and will arrive when Jesus returns the second time. Upon his second coming, then there will be the final judgment. The heavens and the earth will be destroyed and remade. And then those who have been found in Christ in the Lamb's book of life will live on eternally with him. And that's when this idea of this feasting eternally will begin. But in some ways we think that the Corinthians had started seeing this feasting as happening now. And he's saying, no, no, no. The Lord's Supper is for now until that Messianic banquet begins. And so as you obey him in this, as you you, um, remember his death on your behalf, as you look forward to the future through this symbolic feast, what you're doing is you're anticipating the feast that will come. Um, 
Okay, any thoughts about that? That's good. We'll keep, keep going, verses 27 through 34. Because, because of all of this, what he's already said, he goes on to say, Whoever, therefore, eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill, and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined, so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give directions when I come. Um, do you see here that there's this sense of worthiness and unworthiness, partaking of the body and the blood, the um, bread and the wine. And again here, see how he says, whoever therefore eats the bread. He doesn't say it's only the body at this point. He's saying, no, it's still bread. Uh, again, that, that word against transubstantiation. Whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of profaning the body and the blood of the Lord. What does that mean? In a sense, we're each one of us unworthy, right? We're unworthy to receive what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. But that's part, that's part of the point of it, is that we're not worthy. Um, we're not worthy to ascend to heaven by our own righteousness. Rather, God has come down in Jesus Christ. God has atoned for our guilt through um, the blood of Jesus shed at the cross. So there is this sense, sense of unworthiness. We all partake unworthily since none of us is worthy to receive. However, what Paul is talking about, this kind of worth, he's saying we partake um, worthily. He's saying... This unworthiness is this boldness, this human pride, this fleshliness that doesn't recognize the sacrifice of Jesus Christ when partaking. That doesn't say, I'm actually in need when I come to the table. I think about this sometimes when giving out, which again, if you do this, don't worry about it. It's the crab claw, I call it. But I can always tell who's grown up in a different tradition. Not that there's anything wrong with it. I'm glad they're coming to our church. Or I'm glad they're now a part of our church. But there's this... um, you know, someone will come and try to crab claw the crab claw the um, the little piece of bread. Yeah, and I call it the pin- crab claw because it's pinchers. It's like they're trying to get they don't wait. They don't wait for you to give it to them. They're trying to take it, and so there's this difference between the receiving and taking. Yes, we we re- no, we receive it. We don't take the body of Christ. We receive it, even though he says take and eat. It's this receiving of what God has done for us. And there's something about putting our hands out and is saying is to say, I'm unworthy. I'm in need. I need Jesus. I need his um, blood to atone for my guilt. I need his sacrifice to be for me. Um, and that's what it means to discern worthily, is to discern our own unworthiness. Those who come without discerning, not that the crab claws are not discerning, because I'm not saying that. Those who come without discerning our own unworthiness um, to partake our ones who are eating and drinking that condemnation on themselves. There is, we have such a wonderful part of our liturgy, all of our liturgy points to this sense of our own unworthiness, but the words of the prayer of humble access, 
We're not, I'm not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under thy table, referencing that scripture passage um, in the Gospels where the Canaanite or Syrophoenician woman comes and says, yes, but even the crumbs um, are given to the dogs to eat. And Jesus says it's not worthy for um, the dogs to eat the crumbs that fall from the mountain. Or, excuse me, there's this idea of, wor- I'm misquoting it, but there's this idea of worthiness and unworthiness. And she says, no, I really, am. he says, you're not worthy to receive. And she says, no, I know I'm not. But even the dogs can eat the crumbs that come from their master's table. So that's behind our prayer of humble access. I'm not worthy so much as to gather up the crumbs under thy table. And yet thou art the same Lord whose property is always to have mercy. What a great prayer to say. Even my husband, who hasn't grown up in an Anglican tradition, you know, when we've visited other churches, he said, you know, we'll both sit there and be like, well, this is different. We don't like this or don't like that about it. And he'll, but then he'll say, well, as long as they say the prayer of humble access before communion, it'll be fine. But almost never do they say it. So we'll just say it together ourselves before we, we receive but there's something about that prayer that prepares us for receiving um, the bread and the wine, the body and the blood. Again, this idea of judgment, um, this sharing in the guilt of those who put Jesus to death when we fail to do this, this illness that has come upon these Corinthians, um, physical illness has come upon them as a result of this spiritual um, failure. And Paul is not saying that all physical illness is the result of spiritual failure. (laughs) Don't worry about that. But he's saying specifically theirs is a result of this. And so he's saying the bottom line is right here in verse 31. Judge yourself. If we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. Isn't that what our confession is? Isn't that what going low means? Is that we're discerning within ourselves our own unworthiness, by judging ourselves, we are able to distinguish, we're voluntarily distinguishing between who we are and who we ought to be. We're recognizing that there's a gap. And in doing that, the Lord then raises us up. And some of the judgment that happens from the Lord in our lives or in the lives of others is a kind of discipline for when we're not judging and distinguishing between where we are and where we ought to be. If you think about that, some of the things that humble us, much as I would rather not have them in my life, those things help me realize, no, I'm too proud, I'm too arrogant in this. Um, and it's painful to be humbled. It's painful to have some of this spiritual discipline imposed from outside, and yet it's God's way of um, showing me my own sin. Do you have anything in your life like that? It's usually I find circumstances that we can't, alter or change ourselves. We often think of the spiritual disciplines as things we take on for ourselves. Well, I'm going to pray every morning and that's going to make me a better person, a better Christian. I'm going to, maybe it's even fasting. I'll fast once a week and that will help me be more aware of my need for God. No, yes, maybe, sure, but really God works through the suffering, the things that we can't control because we're not in control of our own holiness. It's those things that really um, 
really take our egos down a peg that really cause us to rely totally upon the Lord when we can't control a situation, when we have a prayer that's been long unanswered, um, when we are hoping for a certain thing in our life and we just don't see it come to fruition, even though it's a good thing. That kind of discipline um, can feel harsh at the time, and yet that's the discipline um, that the Lord gives to those he loves. Um, Okay, any other thoughts about that discipline and judgment? I know, we're done. I'm going to pray. Thank you, Judy. Okay, let's pray. Lord, we thank you for these um, 1 Corinthians and for the way you spoke to them about uh, the the Lord's Supper. And we thank you, Lord, for the way we get to partake. Um, Thank you, Lord, for our tradition that brings us to our knees before you are the one to raise us up. And so we thank you, Lord, indeed, that we are raised up by your death and your resurrection, that we are forgiven, we are free, And so this humbling of ourselves is not low self-esteem or doom and gloom. Rather, instead, it's preparing ourselves, preparing ourselves to receive, saying, I need to receive also. And so we ask, Lord, today that in the ways we need to receive from you, you would open our eyes um, to see our need. Would you open our eyes to see our lack, our spiritual lack, um, that we might be um, forgiven and freed, that we might be filled with your own Holy Spirit that you would raise us up even from this low point of humility and our own unworthiness. And so we ask this in your name, Lord Jesus. Amen.